after the global financial crisis, everything dried up. So Congress, in one of the only and probably one of the most impactful bipartisan uh, acts of Congress uh, during the Obama administration, was the Jobs Act. And they said, well, look, now the market has collapsed, right? Values have gone off a cliff. People have been kicked out of their homes. The banks are not lending. There's no cash in the economy. We need to do something. I'd like to show you why knowing your why is the start of your journey. Without a strong why, it can be so difficult to reach your maximum potential. My name is Dr. Jason Ballara, and every week I meet with real estate investors and mindset specialists that are taking action in order to build a life according to their own terms. We will break down what drives successful people and allows them to achieve at such a high level. If you are a professional wanting to break through, or simply someone that wants to hear an inspiring story, the Know Your Why podcast is made for you. Hi everyone, I'm Jason Ballara, and this is the Know Your Why podcast. Today I'm here with Dr. Adam Gower. Dr. Gower is a 30 plus year real estate veteran with over $1.5 billion in real estate, commercial real estate investment and finance experience. Today he builds digital marketing systems for real estate professionals who want to raise capital online. Um, so Dr. Gower, I'm going to, I'm going to stop there. First, I just want to say thank you. Thank you for taking the time out for coming on the show today. Um, and I just want to let you kind of tell your story, tell your background. I think probably it didn't start with one and a half billion dollars of commercial real estate. So there's probably something leading up to that. <laughs> yeah, that's a commercial real estate experience, by the way. Uh, and you know, it's funny because you said, know your wife po podcast. I actually thought you said, know your wife podcast. <laughs> I thought, oh, well, that's a whole different theme. Wasn't yeah. sure what that was going to be about. Uh, right. So, what's your first question, Jason? Sorry, where, where do you want? First me to question is just just tell us about your background. Tell us how you got started. Uh, your PhD. I'm I'm guessing it's not in real estate. Maybe it is. Maybe I'm wrong about that. But uh, maybe tell us your background and and kind of you know your journey into and through real estate. Sure. Uh, so, so my actually my pathway to real estate uh, started in apart from family stuff when I was growing up, but apart from that, started in Southern California, and I used to. So it shows how long ago it was. I hope uh, early nineteen eighties. Just adjust my camera slightly. Uh, early nineteen eighties. Uh, I used to seriously. I used to knock on doors in the neighborhood I was living in. And I would say to people, I'll do anything for $5 an hour. Uh, and, uh, you know, some people would go, anything? <laughs> well, within reason. And uh, one of the guys that uh, whose house I knocked on, whose door I knocked on, said, yeah, will you dig a trench for me? So I said, yeah, I'll dig a trench. Anything for $5 an hour, it's fine. Uh, it turned out he was an electrician. And uh, so I did... A good job of this trench apparently and uh so he asked me to uh help him uh pull wires uh which was um you know hard labor as well in a very different kind of way i uh so he used to send me up in attics and crawl spaces and to, you know fight with dead rats and sometimes live rats and spiders and dust and god knows yeah. what else Anyway, so that's how I started. Uh, that was really very, uh, really literally getting my hands dirty at the ground level, if anything 
if, if nothing else. Uh, uh, but then very quickly, I started to raise capital for a sponsor, a ground up sponsor. Uh, he was a, a family friend and they were they did ground up multifamily deals and they wanted to raise capital and uh, short stories. I had good connections with uh, a Japanese shop in uh, mergers and acquisition shop and uh, through them uh, started to raise capital for ground up multifamily. So that's really where it started uh, a long time ago. So you really did start, but like right right in real estate and it, it's funny you mentioned the the trench digging and pulling wires i i did the same thing i just wasn't smart enough to move into raising capital and doing multifamily quickly after that i did a, did a lot of uh working with contractors and uh being in those attics and under houses and things um so you you started there i'm in in so we're, we're still talking about the 80s maybe 90s when this was happening obviously a very different um well the rules were different capital raising the rules were different then but also the um technology the the, the uh you know sort of ability to to reach a wide audience was different then what what were you doing how did you get started because i would imagine that those those skills and processes apply regardless of time or technology in terms of um being able to to develop that skill right uh so i'm taking notes while we talk so if you hear me tapping around a computer that's what i'm doing so we did have high tech in those days actually uh we had fedex if you want to get it there absolutely what was it if you want it there tomorrow more absolutely positively want it there tomorrow morning something like that fedex and that's so that was the technology that we used it was miraculous this was, I don't know, gosh, was it even pre-fax? No, it wasn't pre-fax. I'm glad to say it wasn't pre-fax. But even faxes were new. It was all heat generated. I don't know, it was some kind of paper that it wasn't printed. It was somehow burned onto a piece of heat-sensitive paper or something. It was yeah. really old school. The paper came uh, on rolls, I remember. And we didn't, it did, it came on rolls. And we yeah. didn't have, uh, there were no cell phones. It was pre-cell phones. Mm -hmm. The first cell phones did kick out. They were these huge brick things that you carried around, mostly magnets, uh, not magnets, batteries uh, that had a, a phone with a, you know, a curly wire on it that we'd walk around with. Those were kind of cool. Yeah. Uh, and uh, the rules were uh, definitely different. You, you couldn't advertise. I mean, there was not, obviously no internet. There was no email. Um uh, but there was direct mail, so you could send out, you know, a million letters if you wanted to. But you couldn't do that for raising capital. You, you, it was prohibited. Nobody thought about doing it that way. Uh, so everything was through um, through networking, private networking. And again, I forgot your question. And I go down these rabbit holes, uh, Jason. <laughs> Well, what you asked me. <laughs> no, I, I, I mean, you were sort of answering the question, kind of what what were you doing? What did you do then to, you know, start these equity raises? What what were your initial steps? How did you approach people? And then and then really, you know, kind of how has that evolved over time? Well, um, so it, so when I started, the only way to raise capital was to network and in person. 
So quite literally join a country club or you would go to a conference or a trade show and exchange business cards. Uh, I like I say I was I had uh, some relationships with Japanese investors. That's a long story, but that was through um, some mergers. I, I had actually originally wanted to get involved in uh, venture capital. Okay. And so I wrote to all the venture capital firms funds in California. And one of them happened to be a little Japanese M&A shop. Uh, and they, uh, and I used to have breakfast with this sponsor, uh, you know, once in a while, he was a family friend and I, he was telling me the kind of returns and how they make money. And I just thought, oh my goodness, that's amazing how you do that. So much easier than M&A. Why, why are we running around looking for these little businesses to buy? And so I introduced uh, the idea of investing in real estate to this Japanese company I was uh, working with. And it just took off. I mean, there was a huge momentum. There was a lot of Japanese investment in uh, US real estate in the 1980s, late 1980s. And so really this was just part of that wave. Uh, and the way that it worked was that literally people would fly in sit around conference rooms, so conference room tables. And my job was, I, I was the guy that for whatever reason seemed to be thought to be good at it. Uh, I was very young, right, early 20s. I would sit, stand in, in these conference rooms uh, and work through a set of slides, uh, pitching these ground up deals and how they worked and how they worked economically. And I just, I had clearly had a natural knack for it, apparently one that was better than other people. I mean, it's the only way I can explain it. What can I tell you? Yeah. I, mean, I was I was brought into a world of of multi, you know, seasoned real estate professionals who had been doing this for a, you know, all their careers, uh, and I was a young lad. And for whatever reason, they thought I was the best person to put in front of high net worth individuals. So that was what I did, and it was all manual. I used to produce documents. I remember printing documents, uh, pitch decks uh, on color printers or whatever. I don't remember if they were color or not. But I remember having huge stacks of these. You print one page and then another page and then another page, and then I'd walk around a table and I'd build these things one at a time. Page one, all right, do 20 of those. And then I grabbed page two and I'd walk around the table and lay those on top of page one and et cetera, or the other way around. And then we had these binder things. I, we even bought a binder machine. We'd bind the thing, put on a, you know, I forget what they called it. I've, somewhere I've still got the thing in a <laughs> bloody thing somewhere over there. Yeah. Uh, and we'd produce them and hand them out. I mean, that's what we did. It was, it seemed like it was efficient because we were able to do a dozen at a time. Uh, you know, or 20 at a time and hand them out and then present to a bunch of people. But it was, of course, incredibly inefficient because every time, and it's not, wasn't just us, it was the way regulations required it. Every time we met somebody, we had to go through the same process of explaining everything from the very, very beginning, who we are, what's multifamily, how does it work, what's your track record, et cetera, and then pitch a deal. Uh, so now, of course, the world has changed. And what we do now, uh, this is what my company does. We build 
crowdfunding platforms for sponsors. So in principle, nothing's really changed. We still produce pitch decks. We still educate prospects on, you know, background of our clients, by the way. We don't do this for ourselves. Mm-hmm. At least we haven't done yet. We will be doing, but for the time being, just for clients. Um, you know, you put uh, everything about a client's background and track record and uh, experience and investment philosophy it, it all goes on a website in considerable detail and it's not pitch stuff right it's educational what is the IRR and why do we see the IRR in through this lens what why is our perspective of cat rates this etc and so all that goes onto a website and now instead of handing out flyers or manually talking to somebody you know again and again and again one sends a link to a website or to a page that has information or to a case study or to a you know white paper Uh, and that way it is possible for uh, to communicate i like to think of it this way this way now you can communicate with everybody everywhere all the time yeah. So what what we now do is push all of this information out to uh, uh, from website. Well, first, we create educational materials for our clients, and then we push it out onto social media, either paid or unpaid. And then prospects discover uh, my clients and navigate to their websites, and they're able to learn about them in their own time. On their own devices, there's no need to meet uh, and to sit in a pitch meeting and to travel somewhere to see something. It can all be done remotely and from an investor's point of view, anonymously. Oh, my goodness. How nice is that? You can actually research a sponsor and their background without ever having any communication with them. And you can decide for yourself whether or not this is somebody you, you, you trust enough to invest with. And then once you get to that point... Then you can engage them if you want to. Even then, you don't have to. You know, we have clients who raise money from people they never speak to, never email with, not anything other than automated emails, uh, and never have any kind of direct communication with. It's all automated and remote and quite, you know, fantastic for everybody concerned. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the technology now just makes it, so much easier i'm sure probably anyone under 30 has no idea what you're talking about with those binders and stacking the papers around the table but i've done it so i uh, i know i know exactly what you mean but and the, fedex you remember that right yeah well. oh yeah fedex, what FedEx. Was there, that? there was no amazon that's for sure it no. was uh it was all fedex was the the very very best you could do when you're when you're talking about you're, you're using the term crowdfunding are you talking about like specifically reg cf as far as raising capital or you're talking about just the ability to use uh you know technology in the in the internet and things like that to raise raise capital okay so now you've asked a uh, a regulatory question so i'm going to answer that i'm going to make it brief though but in the nanosecond that you are actually asking that question i did look it up because i do need to know these things FedEx advertising slogans were it was this was what it was when it absolutely positively has to be there overnight. Uh, and that was 19 that was their slogan from 1978 to 1983. 
Oh my goodness. It's, it's just, you know, shows how old I am. Anyway, so that's that's what it was. Um right. So uh okay, so there are two sides to crowdfunding. One is the legality and yep. what you can do, and the other is the practical implementation of that. So uh or practical application of that. So the laws changed and the laws said. It used to say that you cannot solicit an investor. You cannot say to somebody, would you like to invest in my real estate deal? Unless you had a pre-existing relationship with them, you had to you had to have a relationship, an established relationship of some sort, whatever that might mean through business or because they're friends or family. But you had to know them. And so and that was a law that was uh, laid down in 1933, 1933 Securities Act. You had to know them. And so what that did was it restricted real estate sponsors from advertising. You can't advertise. You couldn't put an ad in the paper that said, invest in my deal, because that was essentially you were selling stock. That's, that's what you're doing. You're selling securities. Yeah. And it was illegal to do that because people other than those that you already knew would see that. So you couldn't do it. It was illegal, couldn't advertise. And by advertising, that's paid and unpaid. So you couldn't go to a conference where you were being paid or being a guest speaker somewhere and say, hey, I've got this deal at the corner of walk and crosswalk in front of an audience. That was also prohibited. So the concept of advertising is everything, every form of communication, paid and unpaid, where you are in any way at all broadcasting your message to people you don't already know. In 2012, the laws changed and said, okay, now you can advertise. So because this is now the digital era, what that meant was you can have a website that says invest with me, you can advertise on Facebook, you can go on podcasts, all bets are off. You can go to conferences and say, here, I'm here to pitch my deal, here, invest with me. So suddenly now, you can advertise. But hey, guess what? Now the laws have changed and say you can use digital marketing to, to raise money for your deal. Well, how do you do that? How do you actually do that? Oh, and by the way, you asked about regulations. So specifically, the regulations are Regulation CF, Regulation Crowdfunding. That's a whole different thing. It is a minuscule part of yeah. uh, how capital is raised. Uh, it has to go through a funding portal. I'm just going to throw out these technicalities at you uh, because we need to get past them quickly. It's yep. not really relevant, but you can raise money using a reg CF. You've got to go to a crowdfunding portal, a funding portal like smallchange.com or smallchange.co. And it's highly regulated, tough to do, very limited, uh, and very it's actually just very difficult to do. But you can raise money from non-accredited investors as well as accredited. Regulation A plus also uh, was legalized in, or, or came into law in uh, uh, after the Jobs Act, and that also allows you to solicit for non-accredited investors. Uh, that is um, called a mini IPO. So think of an IPO. It is regulated. Uh, you got to do a load of disclosures. There are all kinds of regulations for what you can have on your marketing materials. Uh, also, though, a very, very small part of what changed with the Jobs Act, what has termed, what has come to be called colloquially crowdfunding, really, it's just syndication online. 
syndicating right. a deal online. But the really big one was Regulation D506C. And that's the one that allows you to solicit from any accredited investor anywhere. In other words, you can advertise. That's the one that is by a massive margin, uh, the one that is most commonly used to raise money for real estate. But the difference, so those are the regulations. Now suddenly you are able to advertise, but how do you do that? Like nobody's ever done it before in real estate. Just about every other industry in the world has uses digital marketing one, around, one way or another, especially big ticket items, right? I mean, you want to buy a car or, and run a search, you're going to see a gazillion hits for how to buy a car, right? right? But you never were able to do that for real estate. So the mechanism of how you implement those regulatory changes are essentially founded in digital marketing all the tactics and techniques and strategies that you would, and tech, technology that you would apply for any kind of digital marketing for the first time could be applied to commercial real estate capital formation. That's what we do. Okay. Yeah, thank you for the explanation. I just wanted to, I, I, I felt like I knew what you were saying, but I just wanted to make sure we weren't talking about Did regulation CF that, here. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, not no, that Reg was perfect. That was perfect. Yeah, Reg CF is not what i'm talking about perfect so your I, I mean the changes it's interesting i don't know why this never occurred to me before but if if this all changed in 2012 that was after the real estate the great recession right that was we had already gone through that and you know I, so i think that the i never made the i never connected those that timing of that before but was that somehow related, do you think, or just... Oh, what a nice question. Yes. <laughs> so actually, the history is like this. So it's actually all in my book, Leaders of the Crowd. He said, plugging away here. <laughs> uh, this was published by uh, Palgrave Macmillan. And I did a... I, I interviewed people in the White House and in Congress and lobbyists and uh, early adopters of, of this whole new set of regulations. And this is what I discovered. So the 19, 1929 Great Depression, the Great Depression, oversimplifying it to the nth degree, was largely driven by an excess of liquidity and loose standards on who could be solicited to invest in stocks. So and you could borrow money and there was just like this whole too much liquidity, essentially, and too few regulations protecting investors. And then the, the, there was a depression, the stock market collapsed, and we all know what happened after that. In 1933, Congress decided we need to put a stop, we need to limit how, uh, limit liquidity in the market. And so they passed the 1933 Securities Act, and the Securities Act put limitations on, I've already talked about this, put limitations on how you could, um, solicit investors and what they said was the securities act of 1933 said you cannot solicit for, well actually what it said was if you want to raise money from the general public essentially simply speaking you have to do an ipo well no real estate shop is going to do an ipo how do you do an ipo facebook do ipos even in 1933 it was a huge ordeal to do an ipo 
So little real estate guys, right, or gals out there trying to raise money for a deal at the corner of Walk and Crosswalk, they're not going to do that. But there was an exemption. The exemption is what I've talked about. The exemption said, all right, you don't have to do an IPO as long as you only raise money from people you already know. That was the exemption. So the story there is, first of all, two things. First of all, it was the uh, 1933 Securities Act was designed to uh, uh, take liquidity out of the market or put, put restrictions on liquidity. And something else happened that I've forgotten. It restricted um, how you could solicit, right? Mm -hmm. So that that's what happened. And that was a result of too much liquidity. Oh, bah, that's what I was going to say. An unintended consequence. So the Securities Act was never intended for real estate of 1930. It was never It was all about businesses and how businesses raise money on the stock market. Mm -hmm. So it was an unintended consequence that real estate got hammered by this as well. And suddenly now you go into these darkened, smoke-filled rooms, you know, with wealthy people. They're sitting around in golf clubs, wheeling and dealing together, right? So that's this kind of cliche, the golf club, country club cliche. Yeah. 2012, what happened? The, the great financial crisis, the GFC, massive liquidity in the market, too much liquidity, too much money in the market, banks with loose lending standards, people borrowing with, with no credit, no ability to pay it back, too much liquidity. Um, but then the global financial crisis, what happened was that everything dried up and suddenly there was a lock in capital in the markets. Banks stopped lending. Investors stopped investing. There was no liquidity. Suddenly, after the global financial crisis, everything dried up. So Congress, in one of the only and probably one of the most impactful bipartisan uh, acts of Congress uh, during the Obama administration, was the Jobs Act. And they said, well, look, now the market has collapsed, right? Values have gone off a cliff. People have been kicked out of their homes. The banks are not lending. There's no cash in the economy. We need to do something to get liquidity back in the market. And so they looked back at 1933 and they decided, well, one of the problems is that small companies are unable to raise capital. They're restricted by the, they, a small startup can't do an IPO. Facebook can do IPOs. A startup cannot. And so they can't, they have no access to cash. And that is what was preventing the economy from coming out of this incredible, great recession, otherwise known as the global financial crisis. So the Jobs Act was passed, the Jumpstart Our Business Startups Act. And the Jobs Act, right, clearly by its name, was geared to bringing liquidity back to small companies. Oh, my goodness. And an unintended consequence of that, again, was real estate. Real estate, no one ever thought about real estate. And I know this because I spoke to everybody that was involved. They never thought real estate was a factor. They wanted to bring liquidity back to small companies after the global financial, after the Great Recession, right? When there was no money, 
moving around. How do how do these little companies grow? They can't get money from the banks. There's no equity. They need to be able to advertise. So the Jobs Act was passed. That allowed for, quote, unquote, crowdfunding. Technically, it allowed for them to advertise, to sell shares in their companies so they could raise money without doing an IPO. And guess what? Every single real estate deal involves the first thing you do, you find a building at the corner of Walk and Crosswalk, and then you go out and you form a company. A company, an L a limited partnership, an LLC, whatever it is, and you to raise money, you sell shares in that company. You solicit shares that is security that is a securities uh, regulator. You under securities regulations when you do that, and therefore fall under the Jobs Act. So for the second time, real estate was an unintended con consequence of an act of Congress. Fascinating. Long answers to short questions. No, that I, that was great. That was a, a great history lesson, like how it all ties together too. And, and it it's just um, yeah. I won't I won't get into the the foulings of government, but the, <laughs> this seems like a a, a fairly big um, miss on uh, in far it it just not like not noticing real estate. I guess in in making no, these... it wasn't intended for real real estate. Yeah. It just wasn't intended uh, in either cases. It just was a, an accident of it. And in fact, real estate has been probably the greatest beneficiary yeah. of these uh, of these regulations as a result. Yeah. But if you're not into if you're not in real estate, then who thinks about it? I mean, do you think about startups or venture capital? I don't know. Maybe you do. But most people in real estate, they only myopically see the world of real estate. Yeah. And if yeah. you're not involved, in, I mean, I still talk to people. Seriously, Jason, it blows my mind. I was I went in for whatever, you know, I met a doctor recently and uh, I, he said, well, what do you do for a living? And I said, real estate crowdfunding. He said, well, what's that? And I just thought, oh, my goodness, there's still people out there who don't know really actually anything at all about it what's involved and how you can actually invest in real estate it's yeah. mind-blowing yeah. to me but when you're in your own little bubble and your own little echo chamber it's all you ever hear about right and you don't realize there's worlds outside and it's kind of interesting when you discover them yeah yeah it is i mean it, it's it's very true with so many people still don't know even with with all the uh, all the digital marketing marketing that that real estate investors are doing and stuff. There's still a lot of people that just don't don't even know it exists. So, it's it is a fascinating, um, uh, I guess, disconnect there between like, people in real estate, people people outside of real. Well, estate. that's why I have a job, you see, because my job <laughs> is to help educate right. the masses, <laughs> to help make that happen. That's always been my job. Uh, but anyway, your podcast is the uh, Know Your Why. That's a really cool question, actually. So, what's that all about? Yeah, it's uh definitely. I mean, it's it's the the premise for me is that people have, and and this is because I sort of discovered my own. But this people have a a why or a reason behind their continued, you know, continuing to push for success. A lot of times, at first, it's your you want to make some money. If you, if you didn't have money, uh, but then you know you get sort of bigger and bigger reasons to keep going once you're in that comfort zone or or you don't keep going and it, and for whatever reason it seems as in the real estate space people definitely keep going they just you know you you meet you reach high levels of success and then kind of 
go on. So I, I, that's generally, I ask, you know, every guest, what is your, why, what, what keeps you going? What keeps you uh, sort of motivated, I guess, when, you know, it's not, it's not easy every day. Uh, right. It's a, that, that is a, just such a huge question. Uh, you know, <laughs> yeah. and you've said, uh, you know, a dozen things around that, that each one of which could warrant hours of conversation. Uh, but, um, you know, uh, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness is probably the greatest why uh, that we all have. Uh, and uh, even though it might be a bit cliched, you know, what is liberty at the end of the day? I used to think, you know, freedom, what is freedom? And uh, I would walk down aisles when I was first at supermarket aisles when I was first in America and just see, like, go try buying peanut butter and to the supermarket and there's a hundred brands and every different possible combination of peanut butter or bread how many types of bread and how do you choose so it wouldn't it be nice if there was just one and then you would have freedom from choice it's yeah. one of the struggles that people have in life finding a soulmate they used to be like my grandparents were they married because of arranged marriages their parents decided who they were going to marry yeah. what incredible freedom you don't have to think about it you're not chasing about it. is she right is he right is this she doesn't do that i'm not sure about this and you spend and people spend their whole lives like wondering am i giving in am i giving up am i selling out and you think wouldn't it be nice if somebody said you're going to marry her end of story perfect no i don't have to think about it freedom from choice sounds ridiculous but freedom you know, when you're in a world with infinite choices almost for how to live your life, that in itself is a burden on the psyche. How do you decide? How do you gain happiness if there are always choices to, to go further and further? It's one of the classic examples. So there's this book, and I'm on like this great soapbox now. Uh, but there are a few books that I've read. Uh, there's one of them. I'm trying to see if it's up here. I don't think it is. It's by uh, Lord Layard, Lanard, or Layard. Uh, I forget his. Here it is. Richard Layard. Happiness, Lessons uh, from a New Science. And what uh, what's this? Richard Layard. He's actually a lord in England. Richard Layard. Uh, happiness, Lessons from a New Science. He looks at studies, and this, and he actually was an advisor to the British government, uh, and and he advised them so that on how to structure tax and how to tax the masses. And the idea was, we want to. This was Tony Blair's government, whatever it doesn't matter who. But the idea was, how do we tax and spend in a way that maximizes the overall level of happiness in society? Right. So this was kind of what underlay this, this research. And what Layard did was he looked at all the studies measuring happiness. And what he discovered was this um, contradiction, this, uh, this uh, what's the word, this contradiction that wealthier nations, wealthier nations, so more money that have longer lifespans, so better health, don't necessarily, in fact, in most cases, have lower levels of happiness overall by whatever measures than poorer nations with shorter lifespans. Okay, so he dug into, like, why is that? 
And he came up with this great example of why that is. And it was actually one of the less less scientific studies, but it was a study, uh, back of the envelope study conducted, I won't say at Harvard, it might have been one of the other Ivy League schools, but let's just say at Harvard. It goes like this, you've got two options. All right, Jason, two options. Option one, you earn $100,000 a year and everybody else around you earns 75,000, all right? So you've got 33% or $25,000 more spending power than anyone else. That means you have the fanciest car, the greatest house, the biggest swimming pool, the nicest clothes than anybody else. That's option one. Option two, you earn 150,000. So now you've got 50% more buying power than option one. So even, even bigger car and a bigger house and a fancier holidays and vacations and fancier clothes and jewelry and everything. But everybody else earns 200,000. So they're even better off than you are on option two. Which would you prefer? And what he found was that most people go with option one. They want to have more. They, they would feel better about themselves if they had more than anybody else, even if it meant having less. And the reason for this is that we compare ourselves with yeah. our neighbors. If you're sitting there in your house, happy, oh, look, I've got this lovely house and I'm really comfortable. And your neighbor pulls up in a brand new Ferrari, Lamborghini, or what, a Lamborghini, whatever he pulls up in the next door, you suddenly look at that and you think, I want one of them. Why has he got that? And I don't. So now suddenly you go from being content and happy to miserable because you've not got the nice car or the golf club membership or the fancy vacations that your neighbor has. And so you end up in this cycle where all you're doing is compare. It's one of the, it's one of the hazards. Now I'm, I'm really going down a rabbit hole. Nothing to do with real estate, but it's one of the hazards of social media. When did you ever go on to Face Chat and all your friends are saying, "Oh my, oh woe is me, <laughs> life is such a struggle." Right? I've got these bills to pay, and I'm not earning enough, and the mortgage is getting on. To Nobody writes that. All they do is tell you how wonderful life is. And so you go onto social media and all you see is your neighbor next door having a better life than you, because that's all people post is the good stuff. And so it makes you feel miserable. So what is your why? I mean, one of the greatest answers to that question is, I don't know why, but how? How do you find happiness in what you've got? That's that's really the ultimate challenge is just be happy with what you've got. That's how you find happiness. Yeah. So why? What is your why? I don't know the pursuit of life, liberty. Uh, sorry, life, liberty and the pursuit of happiness. That isn't that everybody's why ultimately. But how you get there is a totally different story. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, it's a, I've, I've never heard that uh, that that option study i guess with the two i mean but you're right yeah uh social media is a highlight reel it's just you know mo most people just posting the best parts so that they can i guess compare with everybody else it's a it is a it is a funny i guess crowd psychology type of lesson to 
to talk about and learn. I I, I think it <laughs> understanding those things probably help with your with your business and your ability to uh, help develop you know, digital marketing and, and media strategies for people that are trying to reach the masses and, and, and appeal in such a way that it, that it is um, going to reach as many as possible. I, I would think understanding these things feeds into that. Well, yes, of course, because, you know, unfortunately, marketing, human psychology has never changed, right? So this idea of uh, wanting more than your neighbor is nothing new it's what drives all marketing and it always has uh so for example the idea of fomo fear of missing out this these are psychological triggers that are used across all types of marketing not just commercial real estate capital formation but everything right so invest in this deal uh and get these amazing returns by friday or or you'll miss out right, right. so well, gosh, you know, all these people, 400 investors already in, only 10 slots left. Well, why should they have all this good fortune and me not? Quick, let me make my investment. And so you end up with this emotional reaction to marketing instead of being rational and really digging into what's going on and being driven by it. But it happens all the time, right? I mean, it's just, it's what happens. This is how our capitalist world works right this is just how it works yeah for better or for worse yeah i i agree and it's interesting i was going to ask you you know sort of have that the, the, the history of regulation and things like that I, one thing that always gets to me it, it, it get to me i guess in the sense but I, I feel like it doesn't make sense but when we look at the regulations behind uh the 506b and the 506c where you know we can we can advertise but we're it's only for accredited investors and essentially the the what gets me is the rules are based around accreditor accredited investors and who can invest where but then you contrast that to the stock market which is what most people have access to and know about and there are no rules or regulations keeping them from kind of losing money there like like what people say is we, we have these regulations and these private placement and real estate syndications because it is essentially to protect those investors but those same protections aren't really present in traditional asset class of of stocks what what do you what what is your take on that do you do you agree disagree have thoughts on on sort of why it is that way uh I, I'm, I'm not entirely sure that i understood what you were saying but basically look any kind of investment is a risk Right. And anything in life is a risk. You know, getting in your car and driving down the road is a risk. Uh, in terms of investments, though, there's risks with everything. I mean, uh, it's it, there's a balance between risk and return re reward. If you think if you're looking at an investment that has an outsized reward, by definition, that also has an outside risk you know you can invest in uh, i don't know you can invest with your bank I, I, you got five five and a half percent now uh on in bank deposits that's risk-free zero risk so if you're wanting to get six percent or seven percent or ten percent or fifteen percent or twenty percent that's not risk-free 
That is, the higher the projected return, the higher the likelihood that you will lose your money. Not just not get the projected return, right. that you will lose your capital. So it, it's, it, and it doesn't matter in what. I, you know, I see that I'm not a stock market. You know, I have stocks and shares, but I never look at them. I have a right. financial advisor. He does it. He always likes to get together with me once every six months or three months or whatever, get on a big, long call, tells me what he's doing, and then asks me yes or no. And I just always say yes. Why do we need to have these calls? I don't know. <laughs> whatever you just said, yes. Because I don't want to think about it. My brain doesn't have the capacity beyond the expertise that I have, which is in commercial real estate. Um, but uh, not sure why I went down that. It, yeah, risk-reward. Oh, but even with stocks, right, you, you, you can lose money. You might not lose everything, uh, but you're going to, you know, you can lose. What can I say? Yeah. Diversification yeah. is the best uh, option. Don't yeah. put all your eggs in one basket. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, completely agree with that. What is your, I guess, what is your take on investing in a downturn? people, you know, whether you're speaking to active or passive investors, but something, you know, that, that a lot, it's on a lot of people's mind right now, your, your area of expertise is, is raising capital. What are you seeing right now? What do you think about, you know, kind of the, the, I guess, thought process that investors should have right now? All right. So uh, the first thing I'm going to say is, <clears throat> Jason, I, I've got a hard stop coming up in a little bit. So this is a really That's good fine. question to start winding up with. Yeah. So, uh, so the best thing to do during a downturn uh, right now, I'm going to date stamp your podcast. Sorry to do that. Totally. August, late August, 2023. Right now, be patient. Don't rush in. Mm -hmm. There is a long way down yet to go. Uh, if you've ever been to the Grand Canyon, you will know that there are two ways of getting down to the bottom of the canyon. You could either jump off the edge in which case you'll get there very, very quickly, but it'll be very painful when you land. Or you can take one of those really long, circuitous, kind of slightly flat paths that switch backs and forth all the way down. You'll still get to the bottom, but it'll take you longer and you won't hurt yourself quite as much. That is the economy we're in now. During the global financial crisis, boom, we went off the edge flew down to the bottom and landed with a hard bump. This time we are cruising to the bottom very slowly and in a measured pace for a variety of reasons. What that means is don't rush in. If you buy something today, chances are you are doing what's called catching a falling sword or catching a falling knife. You might think you're getting a bargain, but that thing is still going down. So you're catching a falling knife. Don't do it. Be patient. There will be plenty of opportunities to invest in discounted, distressed real estate through Gower Crowd, uh, my website, or through others as well. Uh, but don't rush into it. Don't don't familiarize yourself with what's going on. Get comfortable with some good sponsors or some people that you trust who have access to distressed, discounted, distressed deals. And just wait patiently. Keep your money to one side and be patient and wait. The time will come, but it's not yet. Great. Well, I 
I know you have a hard stop. How can people reach out to you or how can they find you after they hear this? My, uh, the best time, actually, the best way to reach me is at uh, gowercrowd.com. That's my last name, G-O-W-E-R, gowercrowd.com. And I have um, a weekly newsletter. It's free and we cover all the latest updates and what's going on in commercial real estate and syndication, crowdfunding. It goes out every Wednesday. And as soon as you get one of those, if you want to ask me a question, hit the reply button and I will be on the other end of that. Happy to answer any questions you, you might have. Perfect. We'll put that in the show notes so people have it and they can find you. Uh, Dr. Gower, this was amazing. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for the the history lesson. Actually, I thought that was amazing. Uh, kind of understanding, you know, that that the the regulatory changes. So, so thank you so much for taking the time out today. I really appreciate it. Jason, the pleasure was all mine. Thanks so much for your really, really interesting questions. Made it a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Great. Folks listening, I know you're going to love this episode with Dr. Gower. Please like, rate, and review so we can get more great guests. And thank you all for listening. I'd like to show you why knowing your why is the start of your journey. Without a strong why, it can be so difficult to reach your maximum potential. My name is Dr. Jason Ballara, and every week I meet with real estate investors and mindset specialists that are taking action in order to build a life according to their own terms. We will break down what drives successful people and allows them to achieve at such a high level. If you are a professional wanting to break through, or simply someone that wants to hear an inspiring story, the Know Your Why podcast is made for you. 